You're listening to Canada Reimagined. I'm Patrick Esmond-White. This episode, Constitutional Renovation. It's time to talk about how constitutional renovation can save democracy. First, a recap to set the stage. To generate wealth, we need to unlock Canada's mineral reserves while making it totally green. Energy, transportation, mining, all totally green in a hydrogen economy. To work, we need First Nations as full partners, which means they must have restitution in the form of their own province. Looking south, I examined education, health care, poverty, transportation and other issues and argued that Canada would be better off if these were federal responsibilities. For this, we'd need to renovate the Constitution. That musty old document is based on the British North America Act of 1867. Canada grew strong based on the division of responsibilities as set down in 1867, but the world has changed. We need to do it as well. The Constitution was last updated four decades ago. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms was added, along with official bilingualism and acknowledgement of First Nations. The division of responsibilities, however, was unchanged. Three decades ago, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney proposed the Meech Lake Agreement. It would have recognized Quebec as a distinct society and expanded provincial powers. The provinces liked this. Meech Lake failed, however, partly because Indigenous people were not truly consulted and partly because Pierre Trudeau came out against it. So here I am, suggesting the opposite of Meech Lake. Nationalize health care and education. Create a national guaranteed basic income. Give restitution to First Nations. If any major politician made these suggestions, imagine the outrage. You'd see roadblocks at every turn. Well, I'm clearly not a politician. Naysayers, however, can't change the fact that to solve many of the big problems we face, we need constitutional change. We need to ignore partisan platforms and focus on good government. Yes, Constitutional renovation is nearly impossible. Canada's constitution was intended to be very hard to change. This was thought to be a good thing. Not every country makes it quite so hard. Globally, democracies update or renew their constitutions on average every 17 years. Many countries recently added amendments to address climate change. In Latin America, about 45% of countries have a climate clause in their constitution. In Africa, it's about 36%. Europe and North America have none. So, constitutional renovation is not impossible, just very, very hard in Canada and the United States in particular. The problem is, our fathers of Confederation didn't anticipate climate change or nuclear war or global supply chains, or indigenous rights, or modern health care, our constitution was designed for a handful of refugee colonies at the edge of the world in an age of wooden ships. Provinces and municipalities offered very primitive services. 
Businesses were licensed and taxed by municipalities to build roads and public buildings. Towns simply ordered all men to work for free for a few days a year. The wealthy paid others to do their work. Communities hired teachers. Nobody expected very much. Provinces had enough revenue to handle civil law and local courts. They built a few roads and hospitals, legislated on municipalities, administered business and trade. It was all a very horse-and-buggy operation in a horse-and-buggy age. Over time, the demand for provincial and municipal services grew, but revenue was limited. Not much changed for decades. Then came World War I. The federal government was, of course, responsible for national security and international trade. Yes, Ottawa also managed projects like the Coast to Coast Railway, but nothing prepared them for the cost of a modern war. Just in time, a huge new source of revenue was invented, income tax. Countries around the world jumped on the bandwagon. Governments could modernize and pay the bills. The problem was, many of the expected government services for a modern economy were listed as provincial responsibilities in our antiquated constitution. The provinces went begging with tin cups. Ottawa began doling out equalization payments and paid for specific programs while provinces griped and whined. Consider health care. The provinces ran and do run a patchwork of services with duplicated bureaucracies. Health care is a national service in most democracies, much more efficient and less expensive. Here, the Constitution gets in the way, and that must change. The very idea of constitutional debate, of course, scares Canadians. It implies crisis. Change is scary. But if you conclude that constitutional renovation is essential, that makes it patriotic to do. If you're scared, as I am, by what the future seems to hold, patriotism demands constitutional renovation. Danielle Allen, an American theorist, argues the democratic renovation can succeed if it does two key things. Reconnects people to civic life and makes political institutions more accountable. I would add a caveat, a philosophical principle. In a democracy, decision-making should rest at the lowest, most local level possible, starting with individuals. However, any level of decision-making must do the job. When individuals can't do it, governments step in. If any level of government can't solve a problem that's bigger than what they can handle, the responsibility has to go to the next higher level. So here we are today, and the provinces have shown they can't deliver on education, health, or poverty in a modern economy. Likewise on climate, defense, or trade, even national governments can't get it done. On these, we must work in alliances. All this demands constitutional renovation. For any Canadian to support constitutional change, there's a threshold to pass. It's not a light decision. It's different for every individual. It's basically saying that a crisis is coming and to solve it, we have to change how we govern ourselves. We must reinvent democracy. Anything else will fail. Once you cross this threshold, solutions abound.
Indigenous restitution, climate action, national health care and education, a guaranteed basic income. I've touched on some of the threshold issues and the solutions, but under our constitution, the provinces must agree on change. Give up power? Provincial politicians would hate it. Voters, however, might support that renovation. After all, voters ultimately are supposed to have a say. In upcoming episodes, I'll look at ways to improve voting. I'll speculate on how provinces would react. But first, let me outline what provinces would retain if the renovations I suggest were adopted. Voters would elect members to the provincial legislature. It might go through a preferential ballot in some cases, but that would all be up to the province. The legislative mandate that they would address, however, would be narrower. They would coordinate the administration of health, education, infrastructure, and so on, but Ottawa would set the national policy and provide the funding. Good premiers would be good managers. The provinces would keep provincial income taxes, sales taxes, and other sources of revenue. They'd be responsible for civil law, provincial justice, police, economic development, local infrastructure, zoning, housing, school boards, parks, culture, and recreation. There's lots and lots of critical stuff still here. But there's another renovation worth considering. Municipalities are creatures of the province. They have limited revenue sources. They have no constitutional standing. If we were really open to constitutional change, major cities, say those with more than one and a half million residents, could gain the status of a province. Six metropolitan areas would qualify today. If this happened, existing provinces would be smaller by population, but would not be dominated by the urban majority. Now, if any of the ideas I've suggested were actually adopted, we'd go a long way towards reinventing confederation. I know the easy path is to just keep going the way we are to fumble along. We have so-so good government. We take two steps forward, one step back. None of this gets us to where we need to be with a new national dream that offers hope. We are a diverse, multicultural society spread over multiple time zones, hundreds of different ecosystems. Governing this cultural mosaic is hard. We need a democracy that works for a confederacy of nations and provinces within Canada for our diverse cultures and languages. Here's why this is extra important. All over the world, Countries are dealing with the chaos left behind by colonialism. Tribes and nations are divided by artificial borders often set by colonial rulers or conquest. Starving people fight over the same traditional lands, over scarce resources. Their struggle is made worse by population growth and the climate crisis. To help the poor of the world, Canada has given aid generously, but we have limited resources, and we can't dictate what others should do. The most valuable thing we can do is to set an example. We can reinvent democracy and renovate confederation. We can show a different political path that others may choose to follow. This can be the cornerstone of a new foreign policy. The 1867 version of Confederation should not be allowed to get in the way of peace, order, and good government in the 21st century. It should not stop us 
finding global solutions to global sustainability. As the Iroquois requested when they negotiated with the British three centuries ago, we need a new covenant chain that buries the axe of war and plants the tree of peace. We need a new constitution. You've been listening to Canada Reimagined. I'm Patrick Esmond-White. My thanks go to Tom Evans for his artwork, Tom Platt for the music, and to Harbinger Media for their general support to all Canadian independent podcasters. Tune in again next week. 